Turn your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. Eric already read our scripture reading for this morning. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the subject of unity this morning. Unity. If you've been following along, of course, you know we've uh, made a little adjustment in our in our process in our um, flow of the scripture. We had uh, Andy the last two weeks in uh, in chapter one verses nineteen through twenty six. In, in the week prior to that, uh, Eric preached from chapter twenty seven. So just as a or verse twenty seven through the end of chapter one. So just as a reminder of the context that we have here, as we know, the, the chapter references and verse references are not uh, inspired by God. They are put in afterwards to be a help to us, to be able to find uh, different passages, to be able to remember where things are. Um, so these are, this is all one flow, what Paul is writing here. He's, he's giving us this, this whole thought, this whole uh, concept as he's giving this to the Philippians. So we want to make sure that we, we understand what we're reading and what we're studying this morning in the context of what has already been given. And then we know that Paul opened up with the prayer of thank, thanksgiving, uh, prayer for growth for the Philippians. Uh, we saw then the, the overcoming of the gospel in spite of persecution and how Paul, even though he was being persecuted by those outside and those inside the church, he was joyful because the gospel was going forth. And then Andy reminded us of the, of the fact that we can rejoice no matter what goes on in our life because of what Christ has done for us. And then finally we had in verses 27 through 30 this call for us to live in a way that is worthy of the calling that God has called us to because we can, because Christ has already overcome. The gospel has already overcome and so we can live the way that God desires us to live. In verse 28, he reminds us to not be frightened of our opponents and that the suffering of Christ has granted us a great honor to suffer even as Christ has suffered. So in light of the context of persecution and standing firm on the gospel and being who we are called to be, Paul continues this line of thought with a call to unity. We've already seen the concept of striving together for the gospel. Paul brings that into a more clear focus on how to do that with unity through humility. That's the title of our sermon this morning, Unity Through Humility. The big idea this morning is this, because of the overcoming power of the gospel, the benefits of our relationship with Christ will result in supernatural unity when pursued through humility. I'll say that again, and, and we'll leave it up here for a minute. Because of the overcoming power of the gospel, the benefits of our relationship with Christ will result in supernatural unity when pursued through humility. I think that's a very important point there to understand that this unity that we are seeking to pursue is a supernatural unity. It is not something that is common and of this earth. It is something that comes from God. When we think of unity, a lot of times we, 
we have uh, maybe, maybe some earthly concepts of what unity is. We might think that unity is, is everybody uh, doing the same thing together. We might think of unity as everybody looking the same way, everybody talking the same way, everybody um, wearing the same types of clothes. Uh, if, I don't know if you grew up in a school that had uh, uniforms, but uh, that, that's that's uniform, uniformity, that's not unity, all right? So we need to be careful and understand what unity is. And Paul is going to give us um, not just the importance of unity, but he's going to give us a process for pursuing biblical unity. He's going to show us what biblical unity is because unity is a very important thing in the life of the church. It's very important in the life of the church. And unfortunately, many times, unity in the church is a fleeting thing. It seems to come and go as people come and go. You know, a lot of times we, we think that unity is a good thing in producing growth, but oftentimes it seems like growth in numerical numbers can hurt unity. If everyone is not on the same page and understanding what unity is, Unity is not you thinking exactly the same way that I think. Unity is not you doing what I want you to do. <laughs> That's not unity. We're going to see what unity is this morning from Paul. Why was unity such a concern to Paul? Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, we'll get there eventually at some point, but Paul makes mention of disunity in Philippians, in the, in the church at Philippi. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. We know that there was a struggle, there was a problem, there was disunity, at least between these two women. And if we're not careful, disunity even between two people within the church can spread like a disease and it can create disunity among others within the church who may not even be involved in the original problem but maybe begin to take sides instead of viewing all of these things through the lens that Paul is going to give to us this morning. So Paul is very concerned about unity. The first thing that I want us to see here in verse 1 of chapter 2 is the motivations that we should have for unity. The motivations for unity. Verse 1 again says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and then he goes on. All right, so he's giving us four motivations for unity as, as Andy started preaching the sermon earlier. Um, the, the idea here is not, well, hopefully these things are true, right? Hopefully this is something that you all have experienced, something that you all understand. Uh, this is not a hope so if. This is not a, well, let's evaluate this and, and determine, um, you know, if these things are true because, you know, only if all these things are true, then we're going to, we're going to move forward. No, Paul here is using uh, the word if in the Greek has, has an idea of that the statements are actually true. He, he's making an assumption that these statements are true when he says if. 
That's the way that it, is, that it is laid out in the Greek. So when Paul's saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he's not saying, if you find that to be true, move on. He's saying, since we know these things are true, this is what I want you to do. Since we know these things are true, this is what you should be doing. This is how you should be acting. So let's take a look at these four motivations that Paul gives us here. The first one is this encouragement in Christ. This encouragement in Christ, it's the Greek word parakalesis. It's the word encouragement or comfort has the idea of coming alongside to encourage someone else and comfort someone else. And what does he say there? Is, there? is there any encouragement in Christ? Or since there is encouragement in Christ, where does he point to for our encouragement? It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. How often do we find ourselves pursuing disunity because we're dissatisfied? Because something didn't go the way that we want, the way that we expected, the way that we think it should we can first of all find our encouragement, not in the things that we desire, not in the things that we expect, but in Christ, in Christ alone. Is there any encouragement in Christ? What kind of encouragements do we find in Christ? Remember, he says, it's really it, since, right? It's not just if, it's since. Since there's encouragement in Christ, so what are those encouragements? I wrote down just a few. First of all, the love of God for sinners. Is that not encouraging to your heart? That God loves us. Those who were his enemies. He loves us. The offer of redemption to those who believe and repent. Is that not an encouragement? Not only does he love us, but he gives us the opportunity to be redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. The freedom from sin through his death and resurrection. Are you, are you encouraged by the freedom that we have from sin? I know probably most of the time it feels like, uh, if you're like me, it feels like you don't really have a whole lot of freedom. Because maybe you find yourself over and over falling into the same habits, doing the same things that you know are sinful behaviors. But yet what does Romans 6 tell us? If we are dead in Christ, we are dead to sin, right? We are dead to sin. It no longer has power over us. Are you encouraged by that? That you have freedom from sin? Are you encouraged that you have a, a just standing before God because of Jesus' sacrifice? One day when this life is over, you will stand before a holy God and he will judge you. And then only if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, only if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, will you be able to stand there and God say, you are justified. Even with all the sin and the wickedness that we have done, we can stand justified before a holy God. Are you encouraged by the fact that you have righteousness that is not earned? There's nothing that we can do to be righteous. 
But through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, we not only are, 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 have our sins taken away, not only do we stand justified before God, but we receive his righteousness. God doesn't just see a blank slate. He sees righteousness. Do you realize that this morning? Are you encouraged by that this morning? Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes, there is. There is encouragement in Christ. The second motivation is that there is comfort from love. There is comfort from love. That's the Greek word paramithion. It means consolation, comforting, consoling someone. Excuse me. There are a couple ways that we can look at this this phrase, right? Since there is comfort from love, what love are we talking about here? Well, first and foremost, we have the love of God, right? We just sang about it. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. Are you comforted by the love of God this morning? When you look at yourself and you see your sin and you see your failures, so easy it is for us to be dejected and and worried and and look at ourselves and, and maybe even sometimes depressed by our failures. Are you consoled by the love of Christ? Are you comforted by his love? But not only do we have the love of Christ, but we have love for one another. Have you experienced that love for one another here at Liberty Hills Bible Church? I know we, I've heard testimonies from many of you of people who have, who have experienced the love of Christ poured out from somebody else within this congregation. Is there comfort from love? Yes, there is. What does that look like? Maybe it's somebody simply praying for you. Andy mentioned that, I think. Just prayer. You've asked someone to pray and they prayed for you. And they follow up with you and they say, how's that going? And you know that they love you because they pray for you. Simply someone just sitting and listening to your struggle, your hardship, your pain. Maybe it's somebody who's actively giving you encouragement, whether that be giving you encouragement through the word, through an A&I time or a men's Bible study, ladies' Bible study, a life group time. Or maybe it's just encouraging you through a text message or a phone call. Is there encouragement that's being given to you? Maybe you've been consoled by the fact that others have gone through a similar struggle as you. And they're able to show you what God did through their hardship. They're able to help console you through what Christ has brought them through. Is there any comfort from love? There is. Thirdly, there's participation in the Spirit. This is the Greek word koinonia, one that we know very well. If you've been around here very long, you've heard this. Um, this Greek word many times. It's the idea of fellowship or or participation with one another. Again, there's two types of fellowship here. He says this is fellowship or participation in the Spirit. So we have a fellowship with the Holy Spirit, first of all. Why? Because He dwells within us. 
If you remember our, our uh, preaching through Ephesians chapter 1, it, it reminds us, Paul reminds the churches at Ephesus that the Holy Spirit not only dwells in us, but he's given to us as a guarantee of our salvation. He is the guarantee of the hope that we look forward to. It is God dwelling inside of us, fellowshipping with us, convicting us, encouraging us, praying for us. We looked at that not too long ago. But not only is it our fellowship with the Spirit Himself, but it is our fellowship with other believers. Are you thankful for the fellowship of others here in Liberty Hills Bible Church? What's interesting to me is that this fellowship in the Spirit extends beyond the walls of LHBC. I don't know if you've ever gone on a missions trip before, but I've been on several. Um, my wife's been on a few. I know some of the rest of you have as well. Um, but all of my missions trips were to Mexico. Um, I don't speak any Spanish, but uh, un poquito. Um, but that's about it. <laughs> Donde esta el baño? The very necessary one. Uh, but it's always, it was always intriguing to me when we would go to Mexico that despite the fact that we really couldn't understand each other, we could be in the same service, singing the same songs, and worshiping the same God. And there was a fellowship there. Even though we didn't understand each other all the time, there was a fellowship and a kinship that was there that was supernatural that you wouldn't find anywhere else. And it was only because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, the same Spirit. Ephesians 4 tells us that we are part of one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And he gives us this fellowship within the body. And Paul says one of the motivations that we should have for unity is the fact that we have this participation, this fellowship in the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, he gives us these two words, affection and sympathy. Affection and sympathy. This word affection has the idea of, a, of an inward feeling. And this word sympathy could also be translated compassion or pity or mercy. Again, we can look to Christ in the Spirit for these as well. Over and over in Scripture, we see that Jesus Christ had compassion for those whom he looked upon. He had compassion for those who were following him. In fact, if you read John 17, I know we reference that a lot because it's so important to understand Christ's desire and love for the church. He has compassion for the church. Even in John 17, he even prays for unity in the church. Christ has compassion on us. We need to look no further than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's love is compassion to those who are sinners, to those who are enemies, to make them the children of God. That is a compassion that I don't think most of us really understand. Have you experienced his mercy, his compassion, and affection through salvation? 
You may be sitting here this morning and you may be hearing all these, these nice words that are given to us through Jesus Christ that we can have in relationship with one another and you may not be experiencing that. And so the question I have for you this morning is, if you're not experiencing that, are you a part of the body of Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you following after Christ? Because if you are, then these four things are not maybes. They're realities. They're realities. Inside the body of Christ, there is compassion and mercy in how we relate to one another. When we fall and when we sin, there is forgiveness and encouragement. I know I've experienced that. I've had people who have rebuked me. I've had people who have listened to my uh, confession of failures and there's compassion, and there's kindness, and there's love, and there's forgiveness, and there's encouragement. Continue on and to obey Christ. If these things are true, which they are, then how should we respond to these realities? If these things are true, how should we respond? Paul tells us that we should respond by pursuing unity. Pursuing unity. We have these things. In fact, we have unity in Christ. So we need to pursue it. We've seen the um, motivations for unity. Let's look at the mandates for unity in, chapter, in verse 2. He says, Complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Complete my joy. He says, if all of these things are true, here's the next step, right? And we know all of these things are true. So the next thing he gives us is a command. He says, if these things are true, do this, all right? That, that works very well for me from a programming standpoint. Um, if this, then this, right? Luke understands what I'm talking about, but um, it, it, just, it makes perfect sense for me, right? If these things are true, and they are, then do this. And what is this command that he says that we should do? He says, complete my joy. Complete my joy. This is not a suggestion or a hope, but rather a call from the apostle to this church to do something. To do something. This call is to complete something. That means to bring it to pass or to fulfill it, to make it full. And what is this task that he's asking them to complete? His joy. That's kind of a weird, weird statement, is it not? Complete my joy. Paul began this idea of joy in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul was there at the beginning of their salvation in Acts chapter 16. If you remember, I think Andy went through that in, their, in the overview. Right? So Paul knew where they had started. He knew of their salvation. And he's been praying for them. He has this, this fellowship with them. He has this, this interaction with them. 
And his joy starts with their salvation, but it also goes further in their partnership with him in the gospel. As he's seen them grow and he sees them participate with him and, and give him, help him in his pursuit of spreading the gospel and even in their own pursuits of spreading the gospel. His joy is in their relationship as fellow believers and in their spiritual growth. But Paul is now commanding them to fulfill that joy or to bring it to fullness in some way. I kind of think of this as parents who are maybe sending a child off to college. And uh, they've worked for 18 years, right? And, and they've watched this child grow from a helpless baby to a hopefully mature uh, young adult, and they've seen this child grow up and, and, and they, they're encouraged by what they're seeing. They're encouraged by the way that this young adult is taking on the responsibilities of life. And they're sending them off to college and, and yet there's still one more thing, right? There, there's still those words of advice. There's still those words of encouragement. You've done well so far, but, but, but finish up strong, son. Finish up strong, daughter. As you go off, as we send you off, I want you to, to fulfill it, complete everything that I've been working for in your life, that we've been praying for in your life. Complete that, fulfill it, become that. That's kind of the idea that I have when I look at what Paul is saying to this church. They've done so well so far. They've been a great help to him, and yet there is more to do. What is that more? Paul gives us four statements that sum up this more that the Philippians were to pursue in their growth as individuals and as a local body. And we sum these four statements under the banner of the word unity. Unity. All four of these statements can be wrapped up in this concept of unity. The first one that we see here is being of the same mind. Being of the same mind. Now again, that doesn't mean that everyone needs to have necessarily the same opinions. It doesn't mean that everyone needs to have the same perspective or even necessarily agree completely on everything that happens in the church. I'll just let you know right now, there, even amongst the three elders, there's things that we don't perfectly agree on. And that's okay, because even in the midst of that disagreement, there is unity. There is unity, I, I think. I believe so. <laughs> All right, good. Even in the midst of disagreement, there can be unity. The word here is for neo. It means to think or to set one's mind on something to think or to set one's mind on something. When Paul says to the Philippians, be of the same mind, he's not saying that you have to think perfectly the same. You have to think like a bunch of robots. What he's saying is set your mind on the thing that it should be focused on. Everyone in the church, regardless of our opinions, regardless of our perspectives, regardless of our backgrounds, all of us can do this. We can all set our minds on the thing that we are to focus on. And what is that? It is Christ. It is Christ. Are you focusing your mind on Christ? Our encouragement is from Christ. All these, these four things that we've been given, these 
these things that we can look for and, and see that, yes, we have a reason to have unity, they're all from Christ, and so our focus should be on Him as well. When each member of the body is focused on Christ, they are not focused on their own desires, and unity can be experienced. When our focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ, we won't worry so much about what we want or what we like. We'll be worried about what pleases Him. Being of the same mind. Then He says, having the same love. Having the same love. This is the agape love, perfect love. It's the type of love that God has for us and the type of love that we should have for one another. Paul's already prayed for them to have this love in chapter 1 and verse 9. It says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment. Paul's desiring that they would grow in this love and that it would be not just a general love, but it would be a focused love. It would be a purposeful love. Paul is calling them to have the same love. What love is that? It's not love for a sports team. Although if you don't root for the Chiefs, you're out. But that's not what we're talking about here, right? It's not love for something of this earth. It's agape love. It's perfect love. It's spiritual love. As Christ defined it, it's love for God and love for others. Matthew 22, verses 33 through 40 says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus has commanded us what this love should look like. A love for God. And because of that, a love for one another. A love for God and a love for one another. In chapter 13 of the book of John, Jesus says again, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you dress the same, if you listen to the same music, Drive the same cars? No. If you have love one for another. That's how rare, genuine, agape love is. That the world would look on it and know that we follow Christ because we love one another in that way. Having the same love. Thirdly, being in full accord. That's the word simsikos. It means united in spirit. It has the idea of being one-souled or the idea of camaraderie. The understanding is that we're all together in this same boat. It's not me versus the world. It's not me trying to grow on my own. It's not me on an island of knowledge. It's us together learning, growing, fighting, defending. We're all one. I've had the opportunity, speaking of the chiefs, 
to go several times to, uh, to football games. And there's just something about sitting inside that stadium. I only do it when it's nice outside. But uh, there's something about sitting inside that stadium. And when you get to third down for the other team and that, that stadium is just clamoring, there is, there, there is this, this feeling almost euphoric when you are there and you're a part of the, you have to put, plug your ears, but you know, when you're a part of that and, and you're yelling and screaming at the top of your lungs and people are banging on the chairs and beating all kinds of things and making all this noise, it almost feels like we are a part of what's going on. We are, we are going to impact this play and we are going to make a difference. And, and I think the noise helps somewhat, but at the end of the day, we're not the ones on the field. <laughs> we're not the ones who are having to make the play on the field, but it, but it feels like we're part of that. We're a part of something bigger than ourselves. That's the idea here of being in full accord. When you join in, it's just a feeling of something greater. There's something more than me. There's something more than me. That's the idea that Paul's giving us of unity, being in full accord, being on the same page, working together for a common goal. I think of Awana coming up. And, you know, you look at the, the Awana sign-up sheet and you may look at the, all the options of things that you can do to get involved and be like, yeah, you know, that's not really my thing. You know, I, I, don't, I don't really know how to do that. C can I just encourage you be a part be a part even if it's just coming and sitting down and letting a kid say the verses that he's memorized or that she's memorized it will do something for you that you cannot imagine when you see God working in the lives of these children there is unity in our service, when we are all working in accord, when we are doing things together, when we are being in accord. Fourthly, we are to be of one mind. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Be of one mind. Isn't that the first thing he said? Uh, Paul, Paul kind of goes, goes back here. Just, I don't know, maybe he forgot. No, I don't, I don't think he forgot. I think Paul very purposefully put to be of the same mind or to be of one mind a second time. I think Paul understands our tendency to pursue things that we can do to make ourselves feel spiritual. Can we, can we not find ourselves doing that? We can find many ways to show that we love one another, but it may not be done in a spirit of unity. It may be done in a way to give ourselves glory, to, to make ourselves feel good and other selfish reasons. We can even join in with one another and, and have this feeling of camaraderie. And we can stand shoulder to so shoulder, perhaps in a march down the street. We can be at every event and feel like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves and yet it will all be for show, for our own feelings and not for Christ. And so Paul brings us back to the reality that unity begins and ends with us having the same focus. And that focus being on Christ. Pursuing Him, knowing Him, loving Him, obeying Him. 
Paul's given us our motivations for unity. He's given us the mandates for unity. Thirdly, let's look at the methods for unity. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You might be sitting here and, and thinking, you know what, I, the, the first two are pretty good, right? I, I've, I, I get that. Yes, I've, I've got all those things in Christ, those, all four of those, those, uh, those things that, that are supposed to motivate me towards unity. I've got all those. And, and you know what? I, it makes perfect sense. I can, I can set my focus on Christ and, and I, can, I can interact in love and, and be a part of the group. And I've got this. I can, I can handle this. But unity is not a human thing. Unity is a supernatural thing. And the reality is that there is someone who is working very hard to keep us from unity in the church. He is working very hard to keep us from unity here in LHBC. He's working very hard to keep us from unity in the broader uh, scope of the universal church. And his name is Satan. First Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan's greatest desire is to disrupt the church. He does that through individuals, through broken families, through hurt feelings, through bitterness and strife. Through lofty opinions. 2 Timothy 2, 23-26 says this, do nothing to, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and, speak, and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. How often do we see this raise its ugly head in the church? controversies and arguments often over secondary or tertiary issues that have no impact on the gospel. The thing that should unify us. That is Satan's goal. Acts 5.3 gives us another glimpse of this. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Satan is active. He is working. He is striving to create disunity in the church. And he does that mainly through our sinful flesh. The flesh, our natural desire, uh, is what Paul is going to point out here as he, as he leads us into this verse. And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He starts with the negative here. He says, do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. It's important to note the connection here of these negatives to those he was talking about in chapter 1. If you remember, um, I think it was the last time I preached. <laughs> uh, we, we, we worked through those verses talking about those who were a part of the body of Christ but yet, 
were preaching Christ even in a way to promote themselves, to, to get themselves gained, that selfish ambition, in a way to hurt Paul because they were conceited. We can see that there in verse 17, it says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. I have a question for you. Why do you do what you do here at Liberty Hills Bible Church? Why do you do what you do here at our church? No matter what ministry you're involved in, why do you do it? Whether it's worship, whether it's sound, whether it's coffee, whether it's children's church, whether it's nursery. It's the first ones that came to my mind. Whatever it is, why do you do it? Is it because it makes you feel good? Is it because others acknowledge you or thank you or praise you for it? Is it because it makes you look more spiritual than someone else maybe that isn't involved in that thing? Is it because it makes you feel needed when someone asks you to do something? Any reason for doing anything in the church other than for the glory of Christ alone is selfish ambition. Let me say that again. Any reason for doing anything in the church other than for the glory of Christ alone is selfish ambition, even preaching. Even preaching. If I am preaching for any reason this morning other than to glorify Christ and further his kingdom, it is selfish ambition. And it ought not be. 1 John 2, 15-16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Paul was an example of living like this. Even to the Philippians, if you think about Paul at the beginning of his ministry to the, to the Philippians, um, it started off well, right? He was, he was speaking to the, the women at the river, and, and we see Lydia getting saved and inviting them to, their, to, to her house. And, and then we see that they were going out again to go and preach the word. And they, there's this uh, girl who has a demon, and, and they cast the demon out of her. And, and then there's an uprising, right? And it, it, it's interesting when you read, go back and read Acts 16. Um, basically, it says they, they all attacked them. Like, this wasn't, you know, let's just grab him and drag him to the, to the jail, right? They attacked him, and they beat him, both him and, and Silas, right? And so they beat him, and, and, and they attacked him, and then they threw him in jail, locked him up, and they're going to prosecute him. And, and you know the story, right? Where, where do we see Paul and Silas? What do we see them doing there in that prison? I, man... Silas, I wish we had not come here. Man, that vision, why do we have to have that vision? Why do we have to come to Macedonia? This is just, oh, I hate this. Man, my back is killing me. No, what do we see? There at midnight, singing praises to God. The earthquake, the salvation of the Philippian jailer, and his household. 
Paul was a perfect example of living in this way, not for his own selfish ambition. If he, were, if he were living for selfish ambition, he would have probably left at the first sign of trouble. I don't need to deal with this. And that happened over and over and over again in his life, in his ministry. Do nothing through selfish ambition and conceit. But he gives us a positive method. Put off and put on, right? Stop doing things for yourself, for your own glory. Instead, do what? Instead, in humility, count others more significant. In humility, count others more significant. We said that the title of the sermon is Unity Through Humility because in reality, without humility, none of the rest of this will be accomplished. We will never live the way that God desires us to live as a unified body until each and every one of us puts on humility. This is is a disposition of valuing or assessing oneself appropriately especially in light of one's sinfulness. I think that's an interesting statement, to assess yourself appropriately. We don't look at ourselves appropriately very often, do we? We, we think very highly of ourselves in, in most instances. I know that I do. Whether I'm comparing myself to my children or to my wife or to somebody else here in the church, I have a very high, elevated view of myself. And that is not humility. Humility looks at ourself and it says, in light of who I am compared to Christ, what am I really like? Humility assesses assesses ourselves in our sin in light of a holy God. We, We see the way that people who are, who are, impacted by this react. Even back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid themselves from a holy God. They hid themselves. They, were, they realized that they, there was something wrong with them. They were not worthy. Job, after he's gone through all this communication and God reveals himself to Job and, and all the great things that he has done and, and can do, Job responds like this, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, when he sees that great vision of God, says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 5 through 6 says, On behalf of this man, speaking of one who had a vision, um, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. 
Accept of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may, may, may think more of me than he sees in me or hears of me, from me. Paul was concerned that we would understand who we really are in light of who God really is. That is humility. And when we have true humility, it is a catalyst for unity. When we are consumed with our standing before God, we will see ourselves as undeserving of any importance and will pursue the second part of Paul's method for unity, which is counting others more significant than ourselves. When we truly view ourselves compared to Christ, we will see how wretched we really are and we will, it will motivate us to treat others better than ourselves. Unity through humility. This word for better than, more significant is, is better than. It means to surpass or to become greater, of a greater quality or value. Is that how you view others in this church? That they have a greater quality or greater value than you do? Is that how you view others in your life group or in your home? Have you ever had these thoughts when considering another member of the body here at Liberty Hills Bible Church? They deserve my attention more than my opinion. They deserve my compassion more than my conviction. They deserve my rebuke more than my silence. They deserve my time more than my hobbies. They deserve my financial help more than my comfort. They deserve my work more than my desire to climb the corporate ladder. This is what it looks like to consider others more significant than ourselves. Paul is reminding us that it's not just enough to stop living for ourselves and our own desires, but we need to live for the good of others as well. We we reference this a lot, I know, but if Acts chapter 2 verses 44 through 45 says this, and all who believe were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This sounds so drastic to us in our American culture of get everything that you can, of grasp for the American dream. This is so weird as we look at that and see that they had everything in common, that anyone had, who had a need was taken care of. Now, yes, um, that doesn't mean that we divest ourselves of everything, <laughs> that we don't take care of our families. That's, that's not what I'm talking about here. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of bad teaching on stewardship at least in, in the, the churches that I've grown up in, to the point where we are so concerned about our things and our wants and our future and our, our security and our desires and our comfort that if we've got a little bit more, we'll help. But, you know, other than that, it would be unwise for me to give. That's not the example of Scripture. That's not the example of Scripture. Let me ask you this question. Is it uncomfortable for you to give to others because it's hurting yourself or your family? 
Is that why it's uncomfortable? Are you giving to the point that it is uncomfortable to give something else because it will actually harm you? Or is it just uncomfortable because your desires can't be met? Because the way that you want to live can't be done. Because your comfort isn't there. We might be thinking that this type of humility and this type of unity is too hard. And the reality is in the flesh, it absolutely is. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's why we have those four motivations to remind us that we have everything in Christ that can lead us to and that can help us to pursue unity through humility. In the next three verses, Paul gives us the perfect example. We don't have time to go through it. Eric's going to go through it in more detail anyway next week. But Paul then points us to verses, in verses 5 through 7 to the perfect example of humility in Jesus Christ, who though he was God, gave up. Gave up the rights to be worshipped and honored and glorified. To become a lowly human being. So that he could pay the ultimate sacrifice for you. If that type of humility doesn't motivate us, we should seriously evaluate whether or not we're in the kingdom of God. God desires unity for his church. Jesus prayed for unity in John chapter 17. I believe in today's day and age, we're just starting to see the church really begin to face persecution here in America. We've lived many years with a lot of freedom and a lot of flexibility, even from government as well as, from, as, well as, well as socially. But the world is gathering its forces and raising the banner for sin and targeting those who will stand against it. And my question is this, will we stand together in unity as the body of Christ? Will we be motivated by his work and his love and his fellowship? Will, will we be pursuing like-minded actions and attitudes focused on Jesus Christ? Will we be easily turned against each other based on our own desires or opinions? Will we humbly seek to serve one another in a way that shows that we are Christ's disciples? From the beginning of the church, Christ has desired unity May we pursue it, not just passively because we have it in Christ, but may we actively pursue unity by seeking humility. Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. Even more so, Lord, we think of the example of Jesus Christ who we'll look at next week, Lord, and the, the great humility that he put on display for us for men and women and boys and girls who are sinners, who deserve no mercy, who deserve no grace, and yet you give us both. Because of your great love, Lord, we thank you for that. We worship you this morning 
because of it. And Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to not just walk away this morning thinking, oh, it'd be great if I were more humble. Lord, help us to to pursue humility. Help us to pursue getting rid of those things in our life that are selfish ambition, Lord. Help us to pursue loving one another, elevating one another, thinking highly of one another more than ourselves, Lord. And as we do that, I pray that you would give us a unity that is supernatural, that is something that we could never create on our own, that is something that we would never naturally occur just from being around each other, Lord, but that you would be lifted high by the unity that we have and the love that we have for one another and that you would be glorified in it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.